0: children are always welcome in the service uh here uh but this time it's also we have our uh, our children's program is starting and so uh i, I welcome the pitter patter of little feet uh, as they head back for for uh the program for the kids Kind of an ominous title today, uh, Betrayed. (laughs) But first, uh, a little story. I don't know if you remember in the news, uh, well, it's been several years back, there's teenagers Josh Long and Troy Driscoll. They were shark fishing off the coast of South Carolina. Well, they got swept out to sea uh, by an unexpected riptide. They spent over seven days and nights at sea, these two teenage boys. They're at the mercy of the ocean, burning by day and freezing by night. The riptide took them uh, outside the circle that, uh, that the search team was, was anticipating they might find them. Well, in desperation, one managed to eat a jellyfish to survive. The other had to be physically restrained by his friend from severing his own finger and eating his finger. He was that, just, that's the level of desperation these two boys were in. At first, they frantically occupied their time uh, attempting to get rescued, and then they were just trying to survive. And then, as hope looked like it was all lost, their thoughts turned to their families. <laughs> they started uh, thinking about the the regrets of of, oh, I wish we wouldn't have done this to our families, and... Their, their thoughts turned toward home. Uh, they didn't know that rescue was on their way, and they started uh, etching uh, messages to their family on the hull of this little tiny boat that they were in. Fortunately, happy ending, they were rescued by some fishermen. But as I was thinking about that, that story, um, it made me realize that at that darkest hour, it revealed what was closest to their hearts. In the time of of crisis, it's just human nature that it exposes what we really cherish, what we really love. But the time to consider it is not when crisis strikes. (laughs) Uh, The time to consider it is now. Well, in, in the book of Mark, as we get to this place we are right now, we see this really bittersweet account of love and of betrayal. In fact, betrayal becomes a dominant theme toward the end of the book of Mark. And we see this word betray, one meaning of it is to expose to danger by treacherously giving information or to be disloyal. And that's the, that's the definition of betrayal that we see in Mark. But there's this other definition of betray that means to unintentionally reveal or to be evidence of something. Like the sparkle in her eyes betrayed that she was only teasing that that meaning of betrayed as well. So our central truth today, our, our big idea, if you're following along in the notes, is that crisis betrays what we really cherish. When we're faced with extreme difficulty, where the rubber really meets the road, it comes out what we really love, what's really important to us. You know, Josh and Troy, they are just typical teens, they would prefer to spend their days at the beach or playing video games, you know, shark fishing, sleeping in. But when crisis st- struck, they thought of their family. Crisis betrays what we cherish, but crisis is not the time to start thinking about what we cherish. We don't want to end with regret. So in the book of Mark, we're at the final hours. You know, the stage has been set. All this motion toward Jerusalem, the open encounter with the, with the religious authorities and all that opposition, the continual uh, predictions by Jesus that his, his uh, suffering and death was, was imminent, and, and all this. And now it's the time of the Passover when they would, would sacrifice the lambs. Everything is coming up to this final moment. We see the final hours of Jesus, So this morning we're going to look at two things, thinking about um, these big themes of Mark of who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. We'll look at what uh, the crisis reveals about the followers of Jesus, what it reveals about the things that his first disciples cherished and the things that we tend to cherish. And then we'll look at uh, Jesus himself, and when he faced this imminent suffering and death, what did that betray about what he really cherishes, what's dear to to his heart? So we'll be in the book of Mark, chapter 14, uh, verses 12 to 42. If you're following along in one of those uh, pew Bibles uh, in front of you, it's on page 850. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if anybody can verify that. Uh, this section is kind of a big one in the sense that uh, there, there's about five sermons in here. We, we deal with some hugely significant events as we approach uh, the passion of Christ. Uh, we have the preparation for the Last Supper. We have the, the institution of, of communion. Um, we have the, the betrayal um, announced. We have the Garden of Gethsemane and that whole scene. Um, in fact, the last two... Um, The last two Palm Sundays, I've preached on a a couple of these different episodes um, in the Passion Week. But this morning, we're going to step back just a little bit, take a little bit uh, broader uh, uh, look. We're going to pan out and ask um, the questions that are close to Mark's heart is, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? So at this time of intense crisis, in the final hours, looking uh, at death right in the face... What do Jesus' disciples cherish, and what does Jesus cherish? And it starts like this, verse 12, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. We've seen this countdown. Oh, Passover's two days, and now it's here, and now it's the next day. And so today we come to verse 12, and it's the day of Passover. Jesus sends two disciples to secure preparations. And then later that day, they actually, uh, in that evening, they celebrate the Passover meal together. At that time, Jesus predicts that he'll be betrayed by one of the 12. And in that, in that precious meal time together, Jesus gives new meaning to the Passover meal. And he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate today, communion. Then sometime during that meal, Judas apparently leaves And the rest, they they leave that, now it's nighttime, and they go across the Kidron Valley to the the outskirts of, of town onto the Mount of Olives. And it's there that Jesus predicts that all his disciples will fall away. And then later that night, in the middle of the night, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane together. And Jesus prays, take this cup, but not my will, but yours. And so we cover all that In this account. But first of all, what do these final hours reveal about the disciples, both then and now? And I suggest this. Crisis betrays that followers of Jesus really cherish themselves. Not always, (laughs) but this is our default. This is our, our tendency. When the rubber meets the road, our default is to care about ourselves. Here's just some examples. Verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12 and as they were reclining at table, you know, this is the the last supper. Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Judas, one of you know, Jesus' closest friends, his closest followers, they'd, they'd traveled together, they'd ate together, you know, they'd camped out together, so to speak, they'd, they'd faced opposition together, they'd done ministry together, and it's one of these close followers of Jesus that would betray him. Because one of you who's here dining with me at this special meal will be the betrayer. When push comes to shove, he turned his back on Jesus. And what, why did he turn his back on Jesus? Well, people have speculated about you know, a variety of reasons that might have played into that. But a simple contributing factor, if we back up to verse 10, says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. We really love money. We really love possessions, things, material, um, material stuff and the money that can, uh, can get that for us. And Jesus simply says, well, you can't serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't have uh, money as uh, uh, where your allegiance is and also have uh, God where your allegiance is. And in Paul in 1 Timothy says, you know, the love of money, it's a root of all kinds of evils it 's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, so uh, loving money has caused people to actually derail from the faith and it 's caused them all kinds of other problems as well. the simple loving of money because you could think about it if, if you really love money, that leads to all other kinds of other problems like you know covetousness and greed, theft, you know people lie they There's bitterness over money things. And in this case, a dear friend betrayed his master to death for money. And so as we look at these final hours and what do followers of Jesus really love, when it comes down to it? what's the the driving factor, sometimes we love money more than we love Jesus. We go from here in the upper room where uh, this announcement of Jesus' betrayal is to the Mount of Olives, and we pick up the story in, in verse 26. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, not just Judas, not just the one that earlier in the book he gets labeled, you know, the one who would betray him, the one that Jesus called the son of perdition, the son of a, of a wasted existence. It'd be better if he'd never been born. Not that one, but all of Jesus' followers would fall away. All of his closest friends, they would scatter when the shepherd is struck. I thought of um, Come Thou Fount says, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. No matter how long we've been at at church, no matter what our background is, how much we pronounce that we love the Lord, we all have to come to grips with the fact that there is a proneness to wander that's in all of us. And, of course, Peter objects in verse 29. Uh, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And everybody was saying the same thing. They adamantly claimed their true devotion to Jesus. Uh, we just sang songs of adoration and worship and love about, about our Savior. And uh, we, we pronounce that. We say that to each other. We sing that back and forth. That's what these guys all said. We'll, we'll never fall away. And it was just a matter of not days, <laughs> but it was a matter of hours until they all fell away. And so how was this, uh, this falling away, or how was this disloyalty revealed? Uh, a few ways. In, in the garden, Gethsemane, Jesus is at his most agonizing moment, and he asks his closest followers, uh, just, just stay awake and pray with me. <laughs> Would you just pray with me at this dark hour? Verse 37, Jesus came back and he found them, what? Sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not just watch for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says, what's true of all of us is that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it reveals this tendency that's in uh, followers of Jesus throughout the ages is that when it comes down to it, we really love comfort. (laughs) We really love our sleep. We really love just to uh, not be uh, inconvenienced. Next week, as we continue on in the passion narrative, we'll see that um, that all of the disciples, when danger came, they ran for their lives. When Judas uh, arrived with the with the mob sent from the high priest. Um, all of the disciples scattered one so urgently that he left all his clothes behind it's just this funny little comment that mark adds in the narrative but i think it just shows the urgency where of of the fleeing you know just a few hours later no we will never you know we will never betray you we'll never fall away we'll never you know our faith is strong we're with you to the end and then as soon as something happens poof they're all gone because we really love security. And when our security and safety is challenged for the sake of Christ, there's this tendency to withdraw. We reveal that we really cherish ourselves when we value security more than we value Jesus. And of course, what about Peter who says, if I must die, I will not deny you what... Uh, what became of Peter. He, he did follow Jesus a little further than the rest, but exactly as Jesus predicted, verse 71, this is skipping ahead to next week a little bit, says, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So Jesus, the, I mean, Peter, this prominent follower of Jesus, who said, I'll, I'll go with you till death. Hours later, he says in a curse, I don't even know this guy. Completely uh, distances himself from Jesus. He, uh, he does not want to publicly identify with Jesus because, like us sometimes, what we really love is our reputation. <laughs> we, we don't want to be associated with, with that when push comes to shove. We reveal that we really cherish ourselves when we value reputation more than Jesus. Think of the, well, now it's kind of an old uh, DC Talk song where they say, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? <laughs> what will people do when they find out it's true? <laughs> this attitude of, of um, you know, the, the world might label you um, Maybe it's Jesus freak. Maybe it's some other term. Maybe it's maybe it's fanatical. Maybe it's uh, something else. And there's this this gut thing that happens in us sometimes to want to shy away from identifying with Jesus because we really, when it comes down to it, love our reputation. We want to be, um, you know, we want to be thought of as 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 intelligent, as as tolerant, as as culturally relevant, whatever it might be, and we shy away from identifying. With Jesus, what would make the dearest, closest friend of Jesus say, in a swear, "I don't even know this guy, and I don't know what you're talking about"? So, how did this work out for the disciples <laughs> when it when it came uh, this this all came to pass? They had their moment to stick with Jesus or to um, or to scatter, <laughs> self preservation. What became of all that? Uh, We see in the end that Judas regretted it so much that he took his own life. In the end, he was just overwhelmed with a life of regret. And how about Peter? In in the end, uh, Luke 22, 62 says that right after this event, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He just sobbed. You know, "What, what have I done? We... Don't want to end that way. (laughs) And of course, when we know the end of the story, it didn't end that way for Peter. Jesus um, reinstated him, so to speak, and brought him near. But I think there's a a couple things we need to really grasp here that are important. And one is, we need to not pile up regrets by pursuing money and comfort and security and reputation above Jesus. In our day-to-day life, we can't just function By letting those things control us and expect at the end of our lives to uh, feel good about that, maybe that should go without saying, but we need to remember that day to day. And the other thing I think that comes out in this is that we need to, every one of us, not be so arrogant to think that we'll never fall away. (laughs) Because we're all prone to wander in one way or another, in ways we might say are big ways or ways we might think are small ways. So hold on to those thoughts because we want to look at the whole other side of this. What do these final hours reveal about Jesus? Where is his attention at uh, these last hours when he's facing suffering and, and torture and rejection and death? What was on Jesus' mind? It turns out that you're on Jesus' mind, <laughs> Crisis betrays that Jesus, when it really comes push to shove, he cherishes his followers. This is what we see as the story unfolds. Jesus wanted to spend his last moments with his followers. Those who called themselves disciples, those who, who, uh, who trusted in him and sought after him, Jesus wanted to be with them. In Luke's account, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, uh, uh, talking about um, the Passover meal, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Facing all this stuff right on the horizon, looking death in the face, Jesus says, what I really earnestly want is to spend this time with you. This is still true. And then when he went on to explain um, and give new meaning to the Passover meal and to institute the Lord's Supper, uh, in his explanation of it, he says, this is for the benefit of those who follow me. This is for you. I'm going to die, and this is so you'll remember it, but you'll remember that it is for you. Uh, Again, skipping over to Luke's account of this, uh, he says... Um, of Jesus, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, he's saying, this cup that is poured out for you or for your, on your behalf is the new covenant in my blood. So when Jesus faced agony in the in the garden and he, he faced um, the betrayal and the torture and the suffering and rejection and the cross. Uh, he wanted the company of his followers. This is a theme that goes throughout scriptures. Um, in, in some areas we've re, where we might not anticipate it, the whole, for instance, the whole elaborate tabernacle, um, um, details and some some of us get lost as we get somewhere in the middle of exodus and like oh really we're going to explain how it's all supposed to be made and then we're going to hear how they made it all and and all the little ornaments and this and that and all of that was to create a sacred space so that god might dwell with his people it was because god wants our company Not because God needs our company, but because he wants our company. When he faced agony in the garden, he wanted his followers. Verse 33 says, uh, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. In, In the garden there, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. At his darkest hour, he wanted his followers with him. Uh, you might be familiar with the song, um, Above All. Part of it says, uh, crucified, laid behind the stone. You lived to die rejected and alone, like a rose that's trampled on the ground. You took the fall, and you thought of me above all. It's a very powerful uh, thought. It's a very true thought, and it's a revolutionary thought, and I suggest that many of us miss it, but we miss it for very different reasons, maybe depending on your, your church background or your inclination or whatever. I think there's a couple different ways we view Jesus and his love for us that, um, that are skewed and prevent us from really grasping That Jesus loves you. These illustrations are far from perfect, so just try to work with me here. One is what I'm going to call the puppet Jesus. That's a a Jesus puppet. And this is those who, um, they might emphasize, we might say overemphasize, the nearness or imminence of Jesus. It's the slogan that would say, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, or whatever. You know, we're just so, we're, we're tight, we're so close, it's so casual, it's so informal. And the thinking is, of course Jesus loves me, because it's all about me. <laughs> Jesus is so close to me that sometimes I forget where my arm ends, and Jesus begins. It's like the puppet, it's like... Uh, Jesus says, oh, you are so awesome, Josh. And I say, yeah, thank you, Jesus. And it goes back and forth. And it's this, uh, and our world is, is all about us. And this is kind of what we're encouraged to think. Like, like oh, you, you deserve this. You're entitled to this. Of course, it's all about you. Uh, and of course, Jesus uh, thinks you're, you're wonderful because you are so wonderful. That's puppet Jesus when we like to talk to our, ourselves and pretend it's, it's Jesus uh, talking to us. See, the problem is, well, let me say, the truth is, it's in your insignificance and frailty that Jesus desires your company and willingly dies for you. It's not because we're so fantastic or so uh, lovable or so intrinsically um, you know, special, we might say. It's that even in our our very unspecialness, even in our our failures, in our our weaknesses, even when we were, um, by nature, uh, disinclined toward God. Even in that state, Jesus loves you. He desires your company even in that state. And he is willing to die for you in that state. And so if, uh, if you have kind of this puppet view of Jesus where you just like to say nice things to yourself and, and, and then put Jesus as the tagline on that, uh, you need to realize that, no, um, his plan is much, much bigger than just you. <laughs> this is the kind of, uh, the puppet Jesus says things like, well, if I was the only one in the world, Jesus would have died for me. Well, that's even... It's just not how it, uh, that, that, that's not the case. You know, you're not the only one in the world. So his plan is far, far greater. And like theoretically, is that true? Like, well, I, I, don't, I don't even know That's not how it, that's not how it went down and that's not how Jesus describes it. Uh, when it's, we come to grips with, uh, I don't have anything to offer, but Jesus loves me so much and he desires my company. <laughs> It's, it's revolutionary. Well, there's another uh, way that I think we get kind of messed up when we think about Jesus and his love for us, and I'm going to call that uh, trick-or-treating Jesus. This is a Jesus costume you can get on Amazon. Um, I'm not suggesting that you do. And I don't want to know how many of you who are much too old for trick-or-treating went out trick-or-treating uh, this past week. But here's what I mean by this. Try to, try to track with me. Sometimes, instead of the nearness of Jesus and the closeness, um, sometimes we emphasize the transcendent nature of Christ. How he's so otherly, he's so holy, he's so uh, of a different thing than us, that we miss the fact that he loves us in a, in a very real and gritty way, if I might use that term. So we view the incarnation the, the God becoming man, as if um, holy Jesus came down and put on a people suit, a people like trick-or-treating costume, and uh, maintained this kind of people persona for 30 years, and then, and then pulled that thing off and like, I'm done with that, I went back to heaven. And so beneath this kind of people suit, uh, Jesus is just unaffected by humanity. He's kind of hovering around, just being holy, and uh, pretending he's a person for 33 years. And so we emphasize this otherly nature of Jesus, and we talk about his love for us in very uh, theoretical terms. Like, yes, it is a, um, a statement of my faith that God is, in fact, love, and he loves uh, each and every one of us. And we'll say that academically or theoretically. And we miss the point that he actually really loves you. And when the all four gospel writers talk about Jesus, they do not describe him as trick-or-treating Jesus. They talk about him as someone who, who weeps, as someone who's tempted, as someone who gets tired, as somebody who, facing his, uh, his horrible hour, wants his friends to be with him. That's how the gospel writers describe Jesus. And uh, it, it's taken us um, centuries uh, since then to try to sort out the theanthropic God-Man or the hypostatic union and how all this works out. You know, we try to you know sort it out and identify it. But as we just read the narrative, we see a Jesus that loves his followers in a way that is emotional, in a way that is real, in a way that is gritty. So I want you to put away your puppet Jesus and put away your. Trick-or-treat Jesus and just embrace the love that Jesus actually has for you. Perhaps a better illustration is simply the love of a parent. And this is how uh, God describes his, his relationship with us. Uh, those who have received him, those who, who have believed in him, uh, he gives them the, the right or authority to be called the children of God. This is in John 1. As a parent, you know of toddlers or whatever you, you don 't need your kids they don't really, um, they don 't really contribute to the the income they don 't really do chores yet they don 't take care of you um, but uh, do you desire their company? Would you die for them that 's jesus disposition towards you we 're all just babies. <laughs> Crawling around, doing our thing, and uh, he sees us in our helplessness, and he wants to be with us, and he loves us to death. And so we see here at the end of the narrative in Mark that this crisis betrays that Jesus really, when it comes down to it, uh, he loves his followers. (laughs) He cherishes you. And so back to this question of, well, how do we get from a life of cherishing ourselves to a life of cherishing Jesus, which is really what we, we, you know, the application of this. We don't want to have this life of regrets where it comes down to it. We wish this or wish that, but we want to have a life of cherishing Jesus throughout. Well, I think the answer is our affections are transformed when we come to grips with Jesus' love for us. That is a transformational uh, That's a transformational thought. A woman uh, recently told me this. She said, I grew up in church, but always felt a disconnect in my relationship with God. I worked so hard to earn God's favor, but all along there was a growing emptiness that took me down an increasingly destructive path. I don't know if anyone can relate. Ultimately, I found myself at the bottom of a pit, my life falling apart. And in that place, where I had to face my own depravity, I was finally confronted by the reality and the intensity of God's love for me, which was completely independent of my performance. And that was the turning point in my life. So I want to challenge you to let Jesus' disposition towards you to transform your disposition toward Him, <laughs> let the overwhelming, abundant love of Christ transform your heart in love toward Him. I was just talking with uh, with Tom this morning about how many times uh, the Lord just orchestrates uh, without our trying the nine o'clock hour um, topics and uh, and the sermon series we're going through uh, here. And uh, this is definitely one of those days. As we see in, in the end of Ephesians 3, we see the words of, of Paul, who's just, uh, who's just loaded on the, on the Ephesians all this really heavy theology about the mystery of, of the church and Jew and Gentile in one, in one body and salvation only by grace and faith and all this stuff. He dumps all this heavy theology on him. And then he just falls on his face before God, and he cries out, and he prays this. He prays that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him, and that your roots will grow down into God's what? Into his love, and that that will keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep His love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. And only then will you be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. So he lays down all this heavy theology, these things that you know can blow our minds, and then he just prays for us. God, help these people understand that God loves them. Help them understand what kind of love uh, Jesus has for you. And that changes everything. Here, here's the rest of that verse from Come Thou Fount. It says, let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter. You know, like a shackle. Bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm prone to wander, and Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's coming face to face with the graciousness of God. His, his loving disposition toward us that, uh, that binds us like... Like the very best kind of shackles to do uh, to keep our hearts from wandering from Him, let His grace keep your heart close to His. So let God's gracious disposition towards you transform your wandering heart. And in just a closing challenge, very simple, is simply give the Master your heart. That is your, uh, your allegiance, and it's also your affections. Get rid of the, the puppet Jesus that just talks to yourself and says how great you are, and get rid of the trick-or-treat Jesus. Well, well theoretically, Jesus loves me, but not really. And instead, be transformed by his great love for you. You go ahead and put your uh, your notes away and whatever, and, and uh, this time we're going to transition to so appropriately uh, celebrating uh, communion.